Hello and welcome to SSI Live. You've long known the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College as the go-to location for issues related to national security and military strategy with an emphasis on geostrategic analysis. SSI conducts strategic research and analysis to support the U.S. Army War College curricula, assist and inform Army, DOD, and U.S. government leadership, and serve as a bridge to the wider strategic community. Now we're bringing you access to SSI analyses, scholars, and guests through this, the SSI Live podcast series. Thanks for joining us. My name is John Denny, and I'm a research professor of National Security Studies here at the Strategic Studies Institute. Today, I'm joined by my SSI colleague, Dr. Chris Mason. Chris has been at the SSI, uh, at the faculty at SSI, as a professor of National Security Affairs for about seven years now. And he's worked in and on Afghanistan for, for many years, not just at his time at SSI, but well before that. And so uh, today on September 1st, 2021, uh, in the wake of what's just happened uh, yesterday and the day before, there is no better person to invite to SSI Live to chat about what has unfolded in Afghanistan and the implications of it than Dr. Chris Mason. So, Chris, welcome. Uh, thanks, John. Glad to be here. Chris, uh, let me ask you first to talk to our audience about your background, your experience, both uh, in Afghanistan on the ground there, as well as your time working on this issue in Washington, D.C. Sure. Um, I actually started working on Afghanistan in the summer of 2001. I was sent to a Marine Corps Command and Staff College as their, I don't know, diplomat in residence or what have you. Uh, and um, went from there to the Bureau of Political and Military Affairs at the State Department in June of 2001, uh, and Afghanistan was part of my portfolio uh, in the uh, in the Bureau of uh, Political and Military Affairs. And uh, you know, in, in in June of 2001, it looked like it was going to be a very sleepy assignment. Um, Everyone was sure in, in the summer of 2001 that Afghanistan was probably the very last place on earth we were ever going to send U.S. troops. After the events of 9-11 uh, occurred, of course, um, you know, the Afghanistan portfolio became uh, an almost 24-7, 365 uh, focus of activity both within the Department of State and the Department of Defense. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I actually moved a cot and a sleeping bag into my office because uh, it didn't make much sense to go home uh, in the months of uh, September and October of 2001. I wound up deploying to Afghanistan three times, uh, and I've worked on Afghanistan almost full time since, you know, since those uh, tragic events uh, in, in, in New York and in Washington, D.C., Chris, where were you deployed in Afghanistan? Where were you based? Uh, I went to uh, the Afghan-Pakistan border, uh, down near uh, a, a forward operating base uh, called Orgun-E, which was uh, close to uh, another FOB uh, called Shkin. Uh, I was in Paktika province uh, of what was called Greater Paktia or, or, or Loya Paktika, uh, a, a very mountainous uh, region, uh, border region between Pakistan and, and Afghanistan that was uh, used as a crossing point by the Taliban um, for, for many, many years and had been a, a smuggling route long before that. Uh, I also deployed uh, twice to Kabul, 
in uh, in support of the creation of the Afghan National Army and the Afghan police forces. So I'm right in understanding then that you you've got experience there on the ground from really what was the the Pashtun or uh, Taliban heartland in the south as well as in the capital working with Afghan government at the time. Is that right? I did. Um, I actually got into Afghanistan uh, uh, formally a fourth time on a uh, on a trip to Pakistan when we went up to uh, the Waziristan region of what was then the federally administered tribal areas, uh, and we got up into a district called Burmal, uh, which was actually technically across the border into Afghanistan, although the Pakistanis, uh, you know, claimed it as as their territory. That border between Afghanistan and Pakistan is, is, is very sketchy. You know, there's no, uh, you know, there's no border markers or anything like that. It's just sort of, uh, you know, a verbal understanding of, uh, you know, which, which country is which. Uh, and there's, you know, there's often miles and miles of, uh, of uninhabited wasteland that could be on either side of the border. Let me switch now to, uh, asking you about the events of the last, uh, last couple of weeks and months. But I want to start, very broadly, uh, I want to ask you, uh, you know, basically how how do you think we got to this this position of failure uh, following roughly 20 years of effort in Afghanistan to uh, first, of course, dislodge the Taliban and or their support for Al Qaeda in the wake of the 9/11 attacks in our country, uh, and then to as the years went on, uh, that mission, of course. Uh, greater emphasis on stability operations and standing up the Afghan National Security Forces and the Afghan police. The mission most recently, of course, was was very different than when we first arrived in Afghanistan, and the footprint had, had shrunk dramatically. But generally speaking, most analysts view our efforts there as, as unsuccessful, uh, to put it kindly, over the last 20 years or so. So can you talk to us broadly about how we got to this point? What is, What are some of the key explanations to help us understand why we were unable to succeed in doing what we sought to do over these, these 20 years? I think there's a lot to discuss there, and I would say that there was a, a series of mistakes made uh, right from the very beginning uh, after uh, the Northern Alliance entered uh, Kabul and uh, drove the Taliban back across the border into Pakistan in uh, in December of 2001. Uh, the Taliban was never defeated. They just uh, retreated across the border uh, into northern Pakistan and their their sanctuaries across the border in Quetta and Peshawar and up in the federally administered tribal areas. The first big mistake was the the way the Afghan government was was created, the way it was conceived. The real problem started uh, with the, uh, the emergency lawyer, Jurga, uh, which was seen to be, um, the, the outcome of that was seen to be a U.S. creation. And it had no legitimacy uh, in, in the eyes of the Afghan people right from the start. Uh, the, pretty much everyone in Afghanistan, more than 75% of the official delegates to the emergency lawyer Jurga signed a petition to make the king of Afghanistan, Zahir Shah, uh, the interim head of state. Uh, and the U.S. delegation uh, basically uh, strong-armed the king into abdicating his throne uh, and uh, then went, uh, held a press conference 
uh, with the, the U.S., uh, the head of the U.S. delegation, Ambassador Zalme Kalilzad, uh, in the center of the press conference announcing what the results were, which was, you know, precisely the wrong optic. Uh, you know, a, a, an American leader announcing what the decision was going to be for the Afghan government, which was contrary to what the Afghan people wanted. I think all the Afghan people uh, broadly assumed that the king would come back uh, at least in a ceremonial role, uh, like the Emperor of Japan or the Queen of England, a, a, a unifying figure of, of national identity uh, and, and a person who would lend some legitimacy of governance to the whole enterprise. Then after that, the decision to try to create a strong central government uh, in Kabul was just disastrously wrong. And people said at the time, uh, that it was a blunder, that it was never going to work, that there was no tradition, uh, uh, no background, no basis for a strong central government in Kabul. There had never been one successfully in Afghan history. And the Afghan constitution that was created uh, was unworkable. And that was basically uh, the, the basis of failure, the basis for all of the failure that came after that. The entire Afghan government was built not on a solid foundation, but basically on quicksand. Uh, and the government was seen as illegitimate by the Afghan people, much as the government in Saigon was seen as illegitimate by the South Vietnamese people. And without that, there was just no there there. All right. So, so far, Chris, you painted a, a picture for us of two big mistakes early on. The first creating a, a government that wasn't seen as legitimate, really a, a U.S.-created entity, and then trying to impose this strong central authority on a country that had never had that in its history. Let me ask you about the role of Pakistan. Uh, does Pakistan play a, a, a role here? I, I, mean, I imagine it does, but how critical was it? How important was it in the, um, the array of things that, that, that maybe were working against the U.S. and its allies over the last 20 years? I think it's not commonly uh, recognized uh, the extent to which the Taliban is a Pakistani creation. Uh, the, the standard Taliban origin narrative uh, is actually a myth. Uh, it was created by uh, the Pakistani uh, Inter Services Intelligence Organization, the ISI. Uh, the Taliban was a creation of the Pakistani army. Uh, the, the ISI is the intelligence branch of the Pakistani army. Uh, we know for a fact that the ISI was doing sort of test marketing, of different origin stories and names for the organization that they wanted to stand up uh, in, out, on the outskirts of Kandahar in 1992. Uh, and uh, as, as Admiral Mike Mullen once said, the, the Taliban were basically the the expeditionary force of the Pakistani army. Uh, Pakistan bears uh, a, a huge uh, amount of responsibility for what happened. They consistently offered the, the Taliban cross-border sanctuary uh, in Pakistan. But more than that, uh, they provided guns, money, um, medical support, uh, logistical support to the Taliban uh, for the entire uh, 28 years uh, that they've been in existence. And anyone who thinks that, you know, a bunch of mullahs uh, uh, created or, or planned 
uh, the, the, the operation which swept the Afghan government from power by themselves uh, in, in, in the past 30 days is delusional. Uh, that was planned by professional military officers. Uh, I think that the, the, the logistical movements were carried out by professional military officers. And certainly uh, the hundreds and hundreds of suitcases full of $100 bills that were handed out by the Taliban to local police chiefs and local military, Afghan military commanders to surrender and switch sides uh, were not, did not or originate in Afghanistan. That, that money came from somewhere. Uh, and I think it's pretty clear. Uh, the historical record will show that, uh, that all of those suitcases full of cash came from the Pakistani ISI. Chris, tell me about the role that maybe uh, Iraq might have played. And I, I mean this very broadly um, in uh, in the inability of the United States and its allies to accomplish its goals in Afghanistan. You know, there was much made in 2003 uh, by those opposed to the invasion of Iraq at that time that it uh, that, that invasion was going to be a distraction from Afghanistan. And uh, we, we know now, uh, thanks to open source reporting and, and some scholarly work that's been done, that uh, that in fact there, there was an effort uh, to uh, essentially uh, husband our resources in Afghanistan in favor of uh, the fight in Iraq. Of course, that you know, in Afghanistan, as you know, we had a, a surge during the Obama years, uh, but then that surge ended pretty quickly. So can you talk to us a, bit, a little bit about what role American strategy, that the amount of resources that we were able to commit to Afghanistan, both early on uh, in the wake of the Iraq invasion, and then over the subsequent years as uh, force levels uh, ebbed and flowed, uh, did we ever have, in your view, the right mix of capacity, capability, doctrine, etc., to apply to this uh, this challenge? Yeah, I've heard that narrative uh, many times about taking our eyes off the ball, uh, going to Iraq, uh, Afghanistan being an economy of force theater, and so on. Uh, and I, I personally don't buy it. Um, I think it's too neat as a as a narrative and. Um, to go back to my earlier comments, uh, the entire edifice in Afghanistan was built on quicksand. And I don't think it would have mattered uh, how much more concrete was poured on top of the quicksand or, or how many more troops uh, were sent into Afghanistan. I mean, if, if we make a comparison to Vietnam, uh, all, of, all of South Vietnam would fit into the part of Afghanistan that was called uh, – uh, RC Southwest, uh, basically Helmand, uh, Kandahar, uh, and, and the desert provinces out towards the Iranian border. Um, South Vietnam uh, would fit into Afghanistan four times with room for a lot of mountains left over. Uh, and in South Vietnam, uh, there were 535,000 American troops. Uh, as many as 75,000 South Korean and Australian troops, and something on the order of 1.4 million South Vietnamese security forces uh, in their army, their navy, uh, their air force, which was the fourth largest air force in the world in 1972. There were over 600,000 militia forces, well-organized militia forces, 
uh, divided into what were called uh, regional forces and provincial forces, RFPFs, uh, in addition to tens of thousands of um, irregular forces and uh, civilian irregular defense groups, combat police battalions, uh, all in, uh, there were at least 1.8 million men and some women with guns defending the South Vietnamese regime in an area one-fourth the size of Afghanistan. Uh, basically, 1.8 million people with guns in an area the size of RC Southwest. Uh, and they never came close to securing uh, the, the countryside of, of South Vietnam. Uh, so, I mean, the idea that, you know, a few hundred thousand more uh, U.S. troops uh, would have made a difference there, I think, is, is delusional. Um, it would have required millions of American soldiers staying for centuries to make uh, an impact on what is basically uh, a medieval tribal society. Clearly, um, if you know, 1.6 or 1.8 million security forces uh, could not secure South Vietnam, 200,000 or 300,000 security forces were never going to secure all of Afghanistan. Uh, and the Afghan National Army, the numbers that were put out for the Afghan National Army were uh, absurd. Um, I think there's a, a book coming out by Craig Whitlock on the Afghanistan papers uh, within the next couple of days, which is going to talk about, uh, you know, the body of, of falsehoods that surrounded uh, progress in Afghanistan and most particularly progress with the Afghan National Army. The, the Afghan National Army, I don't believe, ever exceeded 120,000 men, uh, you know, actual bodies on the parade deck uh, with weapons in their hands. Uh, there were tens of thousands, if not 100,000 ghost soldiers, men who were, uh, you know, on the rolls, uh, whose salaries were being collected and pocketed by someone, but who were not physically there. Uh, the Afghan National Police probably never exceeded 60 or 70,000 effectives. Uh, so, and, and in, in no 12-month period uh, since 2002 was attrition of the Afghan National Army less than one-third of the entire force over a 12-month period. Chris, this has been a very sobering discussion. I want to thank you for your, your time and sharing your insights and assessment with us. Now, you and I are going to continue this discussion next week. During our, our conversation then here on SSI Live, we're going to examine this issue of stability operations, foreign internal defense, and the American role in them a little bit more broadly. You've been doing some research recently, I understand, regarding these topics. You have a number of uh, cases, dozens of them, that you've examined, and you've come up with a, um, a, a list of key elements, key variables that uh, that indicate whether or not a stability operation is going to be successful. So I look forward to you sharing those things with us, uh, that analysis with us next week here on SSI Live. You can now find SSI Live on TuneIn Radio and on popular podcast directories like Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. If you have any comments on our podcasts, thoughts on what you'd like to see addressed, or a response to something you heard here at SSI Live, please go to our website, that's ssi.armywarcollege.edu. Find me, John Denny, in the staff directory, and send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you.
For the SSI Live podcast series, I'm John Denny. Thanks for listening.